Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 62. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we're in Disney. Finally. I feel like this has been a long time coming. For some, I mean, we, we usually book a few months out, but I think for this trip especially, we booked really far out. It was the earliest we've ever booked, thanks to your travel concierge over at Magical Vacation Planner. Yes. J.Selezi at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. I'll go ahead and I'll save you the plug. Thanks. But we are excited. Um, we're there, but we're here. We kind of time jumped because unlike the last trip, we did not bring the studio with us. So what you are hearing is pre-recorded, but it's sort of fun because we're time jumping. And we're talking about a movie that's about time jumping. And it's themed after a land in the Magic Kingdom. And of course, that being 2015's Tomorrowland. Yes, listeners, by the time you hear this, we're going to be standing in it. I- I'm going to be on Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, because that's usually one of the first things that we do when we get to the park. It has to be. I think that's kind of become our default tradition, but it's a great way to kick it off. Yeah. Although, I, do we do Carousel of Progress this time? Um, I, I just feel it's like... It's so timely. Yeah, but we can... It is, but we can walk onto that ride at any time. This is true. So I'm not as concerned. There will be a line for uh, Buzz Lightyear. There will never be a line for the Carousel of Progress. That's true. I guess it's just because since we watched this, the song's kind of been stuck in my head. Yeah. So when this movie came out, I wasn't really sure what to expect here. Uh, Was it going to be something like Haunted Mansion where they were jamming the parks down our throat? Was it going to be something more subtle? They didn't give a lot away in the trailer, I remember. No, and I thought the same thing. I was like, are they incorporating rides? Like, how are they going to pull this off? But I kind of think that they they kind of reverted back to what they did with Pirates and took the basis of the idea and did a completely separate story that didn't necessarily have to hit on every single ride. Yeah. The only way to really review this movie, though, is to do a linear review. We haven't done one of these in a long time. But this movie is so convoluted, especially with time jumping and different dimensions that there's really no other way to do it. Yeah, so we're just going to go through scene by scene. All right. Starting with the opening, we learn that there is a clock that is ticking, but we don't know to what. We see an older version of Frank Walker, played by George Clooney, talking to somebody off screen. It turns out that that person is Casey Newton, who is played by Britt Robertson. Well, we go back to the 1964 World's Fair and see a young Frank Walker as he goes to the inventor's competition to show off his jetpack in the hopes of claiming the $50 prize. Out of the gate, it's a great, big, beautiful opening. Because you hear the song Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow from Carousel of Progress. And I remember that was the first time, because we did see it in theaters, that was the first time I collapsed in my seat. Yeah, they nailed it. The combination of the World's Fair and with the music, it's it's just perfect. They absolutely nailed that open. I The only thing I feel like I'm missing is like a Stark Industries 
vendor setup. Right. I want to see it so bad, even though it's two different worlds. I kind of wish they threw in like a little nod to it. Yeah. And obviously, because it's a jetpack, it sort of does have a rocketeer feel to it. But it's a very crude design because it's an old Electrolux vacuum cleaner that Frank has turned into this jetpack. But it's fun nonetheless. It is a bit of a rocketeer ripoff, though, because when he actually goes to pitch his invention, it flashes back to the first time he used it and trying to make it work, and he crashes right through a fence in an open field. I mean, I guess how many things can you do with a jetpack? You kind of have to be in an open field. Yeah, you're not going to test it in a residential neighborhood. Exactly. But it just, you know, that that small town little boy with big dreams, it, it kind of was a little bit too much on the nose. We also meet Athena as well as David Nix, who is a judge of the competition, but he disqualifies Frank because, as you just mentioned, the pack doesn't really work. Against her father's wishes, Athena gives Frank a Tomorrowland pin and instructs him to follow them, but to not be spotted and sort of trail them. He follows them to Walt Disney's It's a Small World, gets on an empty boat, and through a trapdoor and an elevator is transported to Tomorrowland. So immediately, this is the love letter to Disney Parks fans that I think we all sort of wish that um, the Haunted Mansion had been. Exactly. I love the pin. That Tomorrowland pin that she gives him is so spot on. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what you recognize. So there's that familiarity there. So already it tugs at the heartstrings. Um, and so it, like right away, now I'm really intrigued because still we don't really know exactly what's going to happen. And now I'm thinking, wow, like this movie is basically taking place in like the Magic Kingdom. Right. And I also like that they kind of took a page out of National Treasures book where it's you've got the historical accuracy set up first. So once she hands that pin over, I'm kind of like, all right, we're about to have everything we know turned on its head. And I'm so along for the ride at this point. And we were discussing it while we watched this scene in particular, and it was very clear to us that they have to have shot this at Disneyland. Now that we've been there, it, that was not clear to me at all the first time we watched it. I thought maybe they had done it on a set because it's clearly not Florida. But right. now having been there, I recognized, you know, the pathways and how it's built over the, um, you know, over the ride. You yes. can walk over the boats. Yeah, because everything's done exterior in Disneyland. Right. Versus being interior. And I noticed that there were a lot of quick cutaways when they were actually in the ride. And I think that's because they were trying to cut away from the fact that there are Disney characters in that version of the ride. And I think that they were trying to shoot around that. Oh, that's a really great point. I was actually so focused on how they did that first crane shot because they kind of drop in from the ceiling. And I was like, how would they fit that in there? Unless they, they must have droned it because there's no way you could do that much of an elaborate camera rig on that ride. Yeah, because it, it is very tiny. It doesn't have the high ceilings that the one in Disney World does. And the one in Disney World, the ceilings aren't even all that high. Yeah. So just to give you an idea of how much smaller it is in, in terms of scope, um, yeah, it would have been tough to pull that one off. Even some of the shots of Frank going through, I'm like, where were you standing to get this? Mm -hmm. 
Well, anyway, so he gets transported to Tomorrowland, and with the help of some robots, his jetpack is fixed, and he is spotted by Athena and David. We see Casey break into the NASA launch site, and she starts blowing fuses on the cranes in order to stop its deconstruction. We see that Athena is still a child. Meanwhile, it's, I'd say, well, yeah, it would be like 40 years later little more than 40 years later? little more than 40 years later. Uh, she's still a child, which begs the question, what is really her deal? She follows Casey back to her house and goes into her motorcycle helmet to get a strand of her hair. When she does this, she obtains her DNA and activates her Tomorrowland pin. We also learn that Casey's father is a NASA engineer who is set to lose his job. It wasn't until we watched the movie last night, and it had maybe been the fifth time we had seen it, that I realized that was Tim McGraw. And I'm kind of embarrassed about that, <laughs> because he's a, he's a highly recognizable person. He is, but I feel like in this role, he looks familiar like you can't quite place him, because he dropped a whole bunch of weight. Yeah, he's he very tan. Yeah. He almost, this might sound really weird, he almost looks like David Arquette. It doesn't sound weird, actually, because he's got the facial hair like him. David Arquette or um, what's his name? Jason Lee. And I guess that's why yeah. I'm like, you when you think Tim McGraw, you don't think that he's in that like six degrees of separation with them. And he's recognizable. But I'm like, who is that? Why do I know him? And then, yeah, then you realize it's Tim McGraw. But yeah, I think he looks more actually like Jason Lee this time around. And he looks young. I think he looks old. Because he is such a built-up guy that I think because he's so skinny and so gaunt, to me, he just, I, I, I felt like they aged him. To me, he looks like single dad in his 30s, maybe early 40s. Right. Well, we saw in, in an early clip that um, Casey has a mother, played by Judy Greer, for about a second and a half. Can I just, <laughs> I, I need to air my grievances with Judy Greer, Okay. This woman is so incredibly talented. She is so funny. And she always plays the sidekick. Like, this woman needs her due. And in this movie, they don't even show her face. I just happened to recognize her voice. They showed her face for, like, a second. I didn't even notice. It, like, blink and you'll miss it. Yeah, yeah, it literally is blink and you'll miss it. But now she's doing, like, hotel commercials. She is the most wasted talent. Somebody please make her a leading lady. She's so funny. So the next night, Casey goes back to NASA, but is caught and arrested. Upon her release with her personal effects, she finds the pin, picks it up, and is sent to Tomorrowland, at least temporarily. Casey lets her father touch the pin, but it only works when she touches it. I have a lot of fun with this scene, because when Casey touches it, she's in the car with her father, he's driving her home from the police station, and when she grabs it, she's in Tomorrowland, and she's in a seated position as if she's in the car, but the car has disappeared. So she's just sort of floating above ground, traveling at about 40 miles an hour down an open field, and she can't figure out what exactly is going on. But I think the special effects, and I'm spoiling this, the special effects here are great. I think that the special effects throughout this entire movie are absolutely spectacular. Yeah, especially, I mean, Tomorrowland is obviously done completely CGI, but it looks fantastic, both when Frank initially visits, and you don't get to see a lot then, I mean, you, you get an idea, but when Casey drops in for the first time, she's yeah, running through, and 
everything just looks amazing. I think that they really did a great job of taking what we know from the land in the parks and expanding on it. It doesn't feel completely unfamiliar. You know, when we talked about this last week, they did a great job of it at Haunted Mansion, but it's like, it's kind of a gift. You know, you have the house. There's not a lot you can... The fact that they chose not to deviate was really smart and they just made it exactly what you know. Here, I feel like there was a lot of room for error as far as making drastic changes to what we recognize. And I I feel like they didn't do that. They just made it, they made it more futuristic because Tomorrowland looked like the future, you know, in the eighties. And now, now that we've exceeded that, it still looks futuristic, but like in more of a, like a nostalgic way, I guess. Well, they've been doing a lot of work over there and they've removed some of the signage. So we're going to know. I mean, you guys are listening to it right now and we're either we're either laughing or crying about the changes that <laughs> they've made. We'll have to report back on that in Look, a few weeks. They got rid of Stitch's Great Escape. I don't care. I don't care what else they do. I mean, you don't deserve a medal for getting rid of Stitch's Great Escape, but it's sort of amazing to me that that ride was even a thing. I understand why they closed the extraterrestrial attraction. It was terrifying. Yeah. I went on the first, on that the first time when I was 18 years old. I was terrified. I just, I don't like that though. I don't like pitch blackness when you can't see what's going on. Understood. I love that when she did go to Tomorrowland, I didn't mention this before, that she still, I mentioned before she was in the car, but she's still interacting with, things that are in the real world because really when she quote-unquote goes to Tomorrowland she's not physically there it's almost like it's virtual reality so like she'll walk into a wall in the house yeah I think that, that she doesn't was, know is in front of her that was an interesting choice the the actress is insanely talented because they had her do a lot of physical work with like falling and when they cut back and forth to initially set up her being in Tomorrowland and established that her body is really where it's at. I think that's really impressive. Um, the, the cuts are amazing, but she's also fantastic pulling it off. Um, but I thought that that was a really interesting choice too on the part of the filmmakers where it's not like Back to the Future where you're just traveling in time and it the biggest concern is like, make sure you don't see yourself. Right. This is traveling through time and space like you said it is like a virtual reality thing where your body's still going but you know you're being transported what you see is is not what's right in front of you well later that night casey grabs the pin and goes back to tomorrowland and uh she learns more and she realizes that no one can see her and that there's a timer on her pin that is running out and eventually it does run out of power and it sends her home with the help of her brother, they do an internet search, and she finds that a store in Houston is looking for her pin, and she sets off to learn more. She tells her brother to tell Dad that I'm gone camping with friends. That's such a 90s trope. Yeah, and the fact that she's just disappearing, like, you know, it, it's safe to assume she's likely been punished because your father just bailed you out of jail, but you leave in the middle of the night to go camping. Even though you keep breaking onto the NASA grounds. Yes, nothing here is suspicious. Not a thing at all. Yeah. Well, we didn't get to talk about the NASA ground. It's gorgeous. They shot it at night. It's lit up. It's absolutely... I, I love that scene. I think it's stunning. I do want to talk about Casey a little bit, though, because we haven't really gotten into her. 
Um, sometimes I find her annoying. She's very, very likable. Um, you know, and she's obviously a smart girl. She she loves to know how things work, but sometimes she's borderline annoying. She's not a know-it-all, but she's like way too precocious sometimes. And, you know, it's never... I mean, she doesn't listen and you need her to not listen because otherwise you don't have a protagonist. But there's sometimes where it's just like you you need to dial it back for a second, like that scene where they're in the car, because she's just trying to get her dad to believe her about the pin. And he's trying to discipline her and like he can't even discipline his kid because, I mean, you kind of get the impression that she is the, t- the caretaker for the family. Right. Especially because mom's not around and... We don't know why mom's not around. Do we learn why she's not around? Well, I guess we're going to learn a little bit more as we go on with this review. I mean, it's a Disney movie, we can assume. But, um, you know, she she's trying to save his job. We have established that. So it's, you know, and she's not a kid. I think she's in high school. They never really say how old she is. I sort of got the feeling that she was like 16 years old. That's kind of what I thought, because she can drive. Like, the first time I saw this, I thought she was supposed to be younger, like 12, 13. But I think in this case, it's just like driving without your permit or something. So, yeah, yeah, you can assume she's like early high school. But I feel like, I don't know, there's there's just some points where it's like, please dial it back. I like her. Um... I think that she is endearing. I think that she's necessary. I do like her attitude. I feel like there are times, though, where she's incredibly intelligent. And I feel like sometimes she sort of just takes the easy way out. Like, tell dad I'm going camping with friends and I'll just hop the fence and leave. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just... It's it's kind of... For somebody that's so smart, like, to not come up with some more elaborate ruse... Right, I guess, but that, see, that doesn't bother me as much because it's like, she's just kind of like, I'll figure it out later. She She's totally act now and and deal with the repercussions. And I guess, well, that's the thing, and I guess that's where, if I have any issues at all with her, that's it, because for all intents and purposes, she's smart where she should be three steps ahead of everyone else. And she doesn't really come off that way, because you're right, she is act now, think later. Yeah, and I guess that's more my issue with her is because she carries herself like I'm the smart girl and I'm going to talk my way out of this. Not in a cocky way, but in a way of like, well, I'm a good girl, so I'm not going to get in trouble for any of this. Meanwhile, you're committing like a federal offense breaking into NASA. Right, and her father made sure to tell her that she was lucky because he had to pull a lot of strings with Homeland Security to keep her out of further trouble. Yeah, that wouldn't really happen. Then he's out of a job and she's in jail. Yeah. Well, anyway, so she sets off to Houston and upon talking to the shop owner and his wife, these are the people that own the shop looking for the pin, she learns that all of the geniuses of the world decided to change the world and created this secret place. They were called the Ultra, but it never went public. After telling them that she doesn't know who gave her the pin because they are trying to find out very hard. They keep asking her if it's the little girl, but she doesn't know because, as we said before, she found this pin in her personal effects when she was getting released from the police department and kept telling the cops, I don't know what this pin is, it isn't mine. And they basically forced it upon her anyway. While she's in the shop, she's refusing to give up the name of the person who gave her the pin because, as I said, she doesn't know the person who gave her the pin. Um, And the shop owner and his wife begin to shoot at her. 
with laser cannons. And uh, she is then rescued by Athena. And after defeating the robots, they explode. We then learn that Athena is an animatronic and tells Casey that she didn't get to explain the guidelines, uh, the guidelines to the pin to her previously because she dropped by, and it was actually a very funny scene, she dropped by the Newton's house Dressed as a Girl Scout. Not dressed as a Girl Scout. She wasn't dressed as a Girl Scout, but she was trying to pass as a Girl Scout with a box of Oreos. And her little brother was like, those are Oreos. You're not a Girl Scout. What do you want my sister for? She was stopping by to tell her what the pin was and give her the guidelines. Meanwhile, Casey's already off on a bus on her way to Houston. Exactly. But that interaction between Athena and her little brother was pretty funny. It was funny, yeah. Well, Athena tells Casey that, quote-unquote, they built something that they shouldn't have, and she needs her to help save Tomorrowland. Back at the store, uh, robots posing as the Secret Service kill the police on the scene and set off for Athena and Casey. I have to say that I think these robots are great, these kind of robocops. They are perfectly creepy. The actors who play them put on the really fake big smile with the big eyes and they crush it. I mean, they really kill it. Yeah. For such a bit part, these guys like totally steal the show. It they're, they're like great comic relief. Uh, But I love this whole sequence. First of all, we've got a great cameo by Keegan, Michael key as one of the shop owners. And um, Catherine Hahn is the other one. They're fantastic. And I love their their battle sequence because the the lasers that they shoot with, they kind of look like the Buzz Lightyear Master Blaster. They kind of do. There are a lot of things here where you can see that they pulled inspiration from the Disney parks. And in some in some instances, it's just straight from the Disney park. Like, I love that we see Space Mountain, that it's an actual building in Tomorrowland. Yes. That's like a functioning building that people use. Well, after they leave the store, uh, Casey and Athena set off for Pittsfield, New York, to find Frank Walker to get his help. Frank refuses to help, but after creating a distraction, Casey lets herself into his house and starts snooping around. She set one of his tractors on fire. He ran out to put the fire out, and then she jumped in and slammed the door behind him. Frank eventually gets back in, and he tells her that he was thrown out of Tomorrowland and that every door back into Tomorrowland was shut. Meanwhile, she sees that he's got this little fortress, which is fun, by the way. I love his house. This is my favorite scene in the whole movie. It's it's what Kevin McAllister wished he could have done (laughs) with his home. But he's got literally like a bat cave with all of these monitors and it's different news stations, but he's pirating signals from things. He's got satellite dishes all over the place and he's got a probability counter that is set at 100%. Of course, at the time, we don't know what any of that is, but it sort of reminds me of the McAllister home mixed with the house from Signs. The difference is the McAllister home looks... Like a $1.2 million home, or I don't know what it eventually sold for because it was recently on, on the market within the past, oh, five years or so. Yeah. So 
Yeah, you can see where it was a sitting duck as far as getting robbed. This, they were really smart about it because it looks like a rickety old farmhouse from the outside. Like, totally believable that you would see that upstate in the Catskills. Yeah. And you'd never know what's behind it. But he also has um, the hologram dog that is supposed to chase away intruders. And Casey, because she's super smart, realizes it doesn't have any footprints. And that's how she knows that there's something... You know, something's obviously going on. But yeah, I I love that it's so unsuspecting. And inside, he's got this whole bag of tricks. Yeah, and she sits out there for hours in the rain, determined to be let in because she keeps telling him, bring me there, bring me there. And she shows him the pin on his surveillance camera and he's telling her it doesn't exist anymore. And then, of course, he says that they shut the door. Well, after finding out that the door was shut, Casey talks about making her own destiny. And that probability meter that we were talking about goes from 100% to 99.994%, I believe. It was either 994 or 94. I think it was 994. Basically, by the look on Clooney's face, you can tell that this thing has not moved in ages. Right. And now it starts to drop. The robots then attack Frank's fortress. These are the ones that are posing as the Secret Service and are destroyed one by one, leading to Casey and Frank escaping together only to be reunited with Athena. Frank reluctantly agrees to help them, and they teleport to the top of the Eiffel Tower. Yes, they teleport to the top of the Eiffel Tower, which, as it turns out, is a tremendous antenna that was built by Eiffel himself, along with Tesla, Thomas Edison, and Jules Verne, and they were the Ultra's original four. I love the fact that the tower is an antenna and how all of these brilliant minds were in on it. That within itself has a very like national treasure sort of feel to me. Exactly. I love any time. I mean, I love historical fiction. So that's like catnip to me. Anytime they're they're playing off of, well, what you think, you know, there's there's really more to it than that. Definitely national treasure. And what I like, too, is that, you know, they have the scene where the four of them are sitting together with the animatronics. So it's almost like a little hat tip to like your Hall of Presidents or your your Mr. Lincoln. Or um, Spaceship Earth. Yes. Probably more so than anything else, Spaceship Earth. Oh, good call on that. I want to point something out, too. And it wasn't until we, we watched the movie again last night that I noticed that when young Frank Walker is in It's a Small World. We see that his uh, pin gets scanned, laser scanned, and that's how that little trap door drops the track and he ends up in the elevator. Right. The Eiffel Tower. In the France scene is where the laser beam comes out. Oh, man. Nice catch. Wow. I was so excited to catch on to that last night. So excited. Very good catch. Yeah, really well done on their part. Well, the tower splits in two, unveiling a giant antique rocket ship. And after staving uh, off more of the robots, they board the ship and take off to another dimension and land in Tomorrowland, which is now in borderline ruins. David intercepts them, and Frank tells him that he thinks Casey can quote-unquote fix it. It turns out to be the entire world. There was a line that was said around this time 
that I thought was a great social commentary about hope, vision, conflict, and accepting that the world isn't what it used to be. Because Frank talks about that a lot. About how this this isn't the place that I came from. This isn't the place it used to be. But he's not only talking about Tomorrowland, but he's also talking about Earth. He's talking about real life. Exactly. Which is sort of a microcosm for this entire movie. It's really why this movie exists. Yeah, they they really did an excellent job with the social commentary because it's not preachy, but you experience it through the eyes of almost every character, really except for Athena, but she's a robot. Um, it happens in the beginning with Casey where, you know, it is sort of a character development thing while she's sitting at school. And they actually, it's kind of funny the way they cut it back and forth. It's each of her teachers. I think it's science... Um, probably like an English class and math or something. And the teacher's lines, they don't really, not one teacher finishes a sentence. It leads into the next teacher talking about dystopia and the apocalypse and, you know, environmental problems. So it's, it's just a really, really well done scene. And, um, you know, they're talking about how it's very timely. Um, you know, how hopeless things seem at times. And Casey's initial reaction is, how do we fix it? Right, and no one can answer the question. Exactly, exactly. Uh, And then, like you said, we do see it again with Frank, who, you know, did have big dreams, but they were crushed. So you could say that now he's a pessimist. And then um, it does come full circle even later with with Nick's when um, he's talking about how... um, it, it, I think his speech is is very poignant too. Is that you've seen a picture, or or you have this idea of the end of the world, and how most people have just resigned to it, and it almost becomes like a self fulfilling prophecy because it's easier to just accept that this is eventually going to happen than try and change it. And that's where Casey really comes into play because she's obviously going to save the world and and put a stop. Right, with her optimism and her faith in being able to change the world. Exactly. Sort of holding your faith and your fate in your own hands. That all comes to a head here because we see the monitor. The monitor was invented by Frank. Turns out that was the thing that they should not have built. Mm -hmm. And it acts as a bridgeway to the Earth. We learned that 40 years earlier, they discovered particles that are called uh, tachyons that move faster than time and that they can see the past and also the future. And that's where we see in the future that the world will end in 58 days. And David says that it is unavoidable. He explains that he won't let people into Tomorrowland because Casey is saying, if you've, if you've seen this, why aren't you letting people in? Right. And he says that humans will destroy it the way they did the Earth. Right. And he does not want to see that happen to Tomorrowland. And when Casey says that she refuses to accept that fate, the world, as they're seeing it in the monitor, flickers back to normal for just a moment. And that's where Frank is trying to convince David that you saw this too, she can fix it. And as he tries to convince David that they can fix it, David knocks him out. Later, Casey realizes that the signal between Tomorrowland and the Earth is broadcasting this version of the future, this ill-fated version of the future where the apocalypse is coming and it's therefore forcing negativity in the world 
And it is filling, or it is acting, as you said, as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. And their goal is, we have to end this broadcast. David refuses to shut the monitor down, and Frank realizes that David is, in fact, in control, and he is forcing this future on the Earth. And David says that he wished to show people this vision to scare them straight, but instead, the world embraced it, yep. and they won't take uh, the idea of a better future seriously, and says that the world gave up and that they want it to collapse. And he says, you you embrace this idea of the apocalypse in video games, in movies, yes. in television shows. And it's easier to just accept it than actually have to lift a finger to try and fix it. Yeah, I think that this was probably the most powerful scene in the movie. Yeah, I mean... Hugh Laurie's delivery, first of all, is amazing. I think he, he was, was perfect casting. And the way that him and Clooney play off of each other, um, it's fantastic, especially because um, there were a lot of jokes around how two former TV doctors are now headlining this Disney movie. Um, so that was pretty funny. But um, I want to dial it back a little bit to when they're looking at this view of the apocalypse. Um they have this ball that Casey spins, which is I, I think they say that it um it's ori it's oriented towards the center of the earth, so however she spins it, she can navigate. Yeah. Um but it looks like the fountain in Tomorrowland. Yes. So I like that they had that little touch there. Yes. And when she's using it for the first time, she's never seen it before, never used it, but she without any explanation can just make the thing work and David says to uh, Frank, oh, I see you've been working with her for a long time. And he's like, no, I just met her yesterday. And you kind of see the look on Hugh Laurie's face. Like, yes, we're trying to, she is the real deal. Yeah, she and I think he knows kid. that he's in trouble because she can actually fix it. Yeah, there's a slight look of panic in his eyes. But when he has this entire monologue about how I tried to show them and they embraced it instead of being scared... He believes that he is so righteous mm. in letting the world destroy itself and not offering an alternative and not offering to help people. And the fact that, to, in his mind, a global extermination is a better option than just changing the broadcast. He can change the broadcast. Right. But no, in his mind, they don't deserve a new broadcast. They deserve annihilation. And we will just rebuild and let the earth take itself back. I mean, he is not just the character, but Hugh Laurie specifically is the perfect villain for this movie. Yeah. And you kind of, you know, you hit on it before with all the foreshadowing. He's the one who Frank does his pitch to at the World's Fair and you know, he's interested in the rock in the uh, jetpack because I think he wants the technology and he's like, oh, this kid, you know, obviously knows what he's doing. But he's like, does it work? He doesn't want a half finished thing. He doesn't want to develop this idea. He just wants it done. Um, so I think that definitely comes full circle later on when, you know, he wants these brilliant minds, but he wants them working for him under his control. Yeah. So. After he has his dialogue, David is about to open up one of the windows and leave them all on 
a deserted island to spend the rest of their days before the end comes. However, uh, they all start to fight with David and his men, this being Athena, Casey, and Frank. During the fight, uh, they blow the door shut using an explosive that Frank had, a one-kiloton detonation device. It forces them all back into this little fortress. The window's gone, the uh, island is gone, and after they blow the door, a portion of the wall falls down on, uh, on David, and it pins him down. But he's still within reach of grabbing one of his guns, one of his laser guns, because there's a number of different weapons that they use in this movie. Mm -hmm. He fires the laser at Frank, but Athena, because she has seen it in the future, dives in front to save him. She tells uh, Frank that she is going to shut down and that her self-destruct will be utilized. So she tells him to use her self-destruct to destroy the monitor, which he does after strapping on one of the jetpacks that they have, which clearly they were able to modernize his jetpack. Exactly. He straps it on. He flies to the top of the monitor. He drops Athena in. And her self-destruct destroys the monitor. And as it comes crashing down, it also crushes David. Um, there's a very interesting line here that I think is poignant and that I think it means more than it seems on the surface. Mm -hmm. Clooney is, is holding Athena. Mm -hmm. He's hovering above. And she looks at him and she says, you can let me go now. Yeah. This is Clooney's best scene in the movie, by far. Hers as well. We haven't really talked about their relationship. Um, Frank had his heart broken by Athena when he was a kid because obviously he had a crush on her. He started falling for her because she was the person, like really his point person in Tomorrowland. She showed him the ropes. She was working with him and he always thought that she was a real person. And she recognized that she was getting a little too close to him and told him, that she's a machine and that, you know, pretty much never going to happen. So to get Frank back to Tomorrowland, that's really why she had to utilize Casey because he wanted nothing to do with Tomorrowland and her because he was just so hurt by the whole thing. Um, and I think what impressed me most about the actress who played Athena, her name is Rafi, um, Oh, gosh, I forgot her last name. But um, she carries herself the whole time. Like, she has seen some stuff. Like, she gets that old soul um, way ahead of her time, uh, you know, and it, she just pulls it off flawlessly as far as just creating a really deep character that looks like a kid. Yeah, Rafi Cassidy. Yes, and she did most of her own stunts, which is amazing, as much as they'll let a kid do. Um, so, yeah, th their whole relationship comes to a head at this point where she's going to use her self-destruct. But I think you're right. I think that you can let me go. I think it also plays to the bigger picture of, you know, this vision that you have. You have to let it go and kind of start from scratch. But, you know, obviously you're going to save the world, so start over from a more positive point. Right. And you were banished from Tomorrowland and you've lived this life of exile and you've lived this life of pain because of me. 
let me go. It's your turn. You you can now fulfill the destiny of Tomorrowland. Right. And in a in a way, you can start the healing process for yourself. Exactly. Clooney is excellent in this movie because he really grasped the sarcasm and the saltiness that was required to play Frank Walker. But in this scene in particular, the hurt in his eyes, and he is and he's crying, and you can see that this is just such a struggle for him because the whole time. As we pointed out, he wanted nothing to do with being here. He wanted nothing to do with helping with helping them. And now all he's concerned with is, I need to save Athena. Right. And it's not until she tells him, you're not going to save me. So just use me this way. Yeah. That he's in pain because it's closure on that part of his life. I think in a way, it's also a relief to close this part of his life. But he's also, he's letting go of this person that really did mean a lot to him from his childhood and even up to this point. As much as sometimes he had a distaste for her, she was very important to him. No, and what's really impressive too is like throughout the movie, they kind of bicker like an old married couple, but there's no romance in this part at all because you know it was a childhood crush but she's still a child so it doesn't i think it had the potential to get really awkward and it doesn't yeah they told the line very well yeah but i mean clooney gets the bad rap sometimes because you know he's obviously an a-list actor but sometimes throughout his career you know when you've made a lot of movies you're gonna have some hits and you're gonna have some misses but like his mentality is always like do one for you and do one for them like, yeah, sometimes you can't always have the freedom to select your roles because in order to get the one you want, yeah, you kind of maybe have to take a movie that you're not so passionate about. And I'm not saying sell out, but like, I just feel like because of who he is and the demand on him, I, I get where he feels like he's in that position sometimes. But I think he does get the bad rap where people think that he's all about his looks and not a talented actor, but he really is. Yeah. He's, he's, I mean, obviously he's very charismatic, but like there's a lot more to him than that. And what I like about him so much is that he really doesn't take himself seriously because he's like, I played a TV doctor and now, now look at everything. George Clooney, if you ever meet him and you tell him that you saw Batman and Robin (laughs) in theaters, will reach into his wallet and give you $10 back and apologize to you. Yeah, no, it's true. That not I've not had this happen, but I've heard he'll of this do it. happening enough. He'll do it. And that just goes to show his sense of humor. Exactly. Well, anyway, back to Tomorrowland. After David is crushed and the monitor is destroyed, Frank and Casey reopen the door between Tomorrowland and the real world, they create new pins and set out to find new recruits to build a better tomorrow. This movie was a box office bomb. This was worse than a box office bomb. This movie lost Disney somewhere in the ballpark of about $140 million, which is a shame because there's no reason why this movie should have flopped, because I think this movie is brilliant in so many ways. But then again, The Rocketeer flopped too. We talked about that when we did that episode. And sometimes movies are just ahead of their time. We can hope. We can hope that this becomes the cult classic. 
I don't see how it can't. I think, I mean, we, we said it before, I love the message of this movie. I think the casting was great. I thought the child actors were a lot of fun. Um, I thought they did a really good job. I thought the score in this movie was fantastic. Carousel of Progress, Beautiful Tomorrow aside, yes. No, yes. the score is great. And I think that director Brad Bird really made a great film here. Yeah, I think he did a fantastic job of pandering to the fans, but still creating a good story. Right. Looking at you, Haunted Mansion. Well, that's the thing. You pandered enough to the fans, but if you were not a fan of the Disney parks or if you were not familiar with Disney parks, you could still sit back, understand this movie, and enjoy this movie. Absolutely. Like that's It's enough of a subtle love letter, but it's not just a big Disney parks commercial. And I sort of wonder if that's why the movie flopped at the box office i'm wondering if people thought that it was just a movie based on a theme park yeah but you could argue that pirates is the same thing and everybody loved pirate i mean the the, the first one the first one was right. amazing they kind of squandered the franchise after which eventually we're going to come around to but i think haunted mansion left a bad taste in everybody's mouth well did it fall victim to here we go again another disney parks movie right but if you strip all that away this is a solid sci-fi and it appeared that they were setting up the sequel that's what kills me about you know how poorly this performed because i would have done two more movies if they did this into a, a trilogy i would have loved to have seen more of this i think that um an overlooked nod to the park is when they hand out the pins at the end of the movie the you new recruits yeah. the new recruits you see the <clears throat> safari guide. I'm pretty sure that that is supposed to be Wilson Matua from uh, Animal Kingdom. Yeah. From Kilimanjaro Safaris. But what I love, too, about the new recruits, I think it's really a hat tip to Walt because they're going after who they say are the dreamers. And, you know, they they find all of these people that are artists and scientists and where they are, it almost feels like everything that the parks represent. Like they, they go and they, um, one of the recruits is a woman, she's planting a tree. So that's like the land at Epcot. Then you get another one that's um, a mechanical engineer and that's like test track. Um, as you said, you get the, the nod to the safari. So it's all, what I really like about it is that it's, it's all of the things that Walt believed in about the dreamers and the believers and, and the doers, really. Right, and also because they are taking not just scientists, but as you pointed out... The artists. The artists, the... musicians, ballet dancers, a pilot. A teacher. Right, a teacher. People who want to make the world better because yes. that's sort of how Walt Disney was. Remember, he if you were a janitor at the Walt Disney Studios and you had a good idea, you could go pitch it to Walt Disney. He didn't care who you were. If you had an idea that you could sell to him, he wanted to hear your pitch. No, and that's one of the reasons that I love going to the park so much is that you you get that. It, you can't help but be inspired by it. Yeah. I think the pacing of this movie is fantastic. We, we just ran through it. We talked about your jumping between time and space. You're in the real world, but you're not. But then you're in another dimension, and then you're in a teleportation device going from Pittsville, New York, to the Eiffel Tower. Yet somehow, some way, it doesn't ever get boring. 
I don't think any of this could have been left on the cutting room floor. This is one of these movies that you watch for over two hours and you say everything that they put in this movie is there for necessity. You need all of it. Absolutely. And it's still done in a way where kids will understand. I mean, upon first viewing, yeah, there might be some parts that are a little confusing, but like, you know... I don't think that a a child is going to be completely lost throughout this. No, if I have any criticisms of this movie at all, it's two things. The first being that when Frank enters Tomorrowland for the first time, his scene where he's falling through the sky trying to reach his jetpack, that goes on longer than the falling scene from Who Framed Roger Rabbit when when Eddie Valiant is in Toontown trying to get the uh, parachute from Bugs and Mickey and they give him the spare tire instead. That's done for comedic purpose because you're in a cartoon. In this case, it, it, it just How many times on. are you going to trip over that jetpack? Yeah, it goes on for yeah, a long yeah, time. Yeah. And where's mom? Where's Judy Greer? We still don't know. We see her in a home movie for about two seconds, but they never talk about where she is. No, and that could have been a throwaway line where, like, you know... Tim McGraw says, oh, you're just like your mother. You're such an optimist or whatever. But I think really she gets that more from her dad because in the home movie, um, Casey's talking about going to the stars. And then I think, didn't she say what happens if you get up there and there's nothing there or something like that? that. And then and then Casey says, what if we get up there and there's everything? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I it would have served better if you would have found out that the mother left because she couldn't take the creativity, the whimsy, the disconnection from reality, which is sort of odd because she's married to a NASA engineer. Right. But just give me a reason why she's not there. Exactly. Don't just make her disappear and be gone forever without any explanation. Right, right. But other than that, I don't really have any criticisms of this movie. I don't think if there was, I don't know if there was anything else that stood out to you. No, just, just like I was saying before, it's, I'm having a hard time articulating it. I just feel like that third act where we're in Tomorrowland, it, like the battle doesn't necessarily tie in. Like you need the battle, but I feel like the whole rest of the movie is like, there are things hiding in plain sight And then once you get to Tomorrowland and you're on the other side of it, we don't see how it ties back. Right. Other than this video of Doomsday playing. Yeah. But otherwise, I think the movie is pretty flawless, really. It's funny where it needs to be to, to, you know, give you some breathing room from all the back and forth and and all of the, you know, it's not not violent, but you do see robots, you know, completely disintegrated. So it's and it's definitely beings. yes, it's well balanced in that regard. Definitely the characters are are likable. The cast is absolutely fantastic. Um no, I I love this movie. I hope one day we'll get more of them. Yeah, and I think that the characters are also fleshed out very well. There's not a lot left to the imagination with them. Absolutely. Other than mom. But let us know what you guys think of Tomorrowland on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. And don't forget, you can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. Hopefully you guys are following on the social media. As we said at the beginning of the episode, we're in the parks. 
Today that you're listening to the release of this podcast is our first day in the parks. We are at the Magic Kingdom. So make sure that you're keeping an eye on everything. We'll be posting photographs. We may post a video, updates, and, and especially when I get to Galaxy's Edge, just watch out because I'm going to be all over Galaxy's Edge. I mentioned last week I'm doing Savis. I'm making a lightsaber. I'm 33 years old, and I get to be Luke Skywalker for a day. And I'm so happy about that. You have no idea. No idea at all. No, really, you have no idea. He can't stop talking about this. But what I'm looking forward to as well, almost more than anything else, and we've been talking about it for months, and it sort of started on here as a joke, just us bantering back and forth, monorail with monorail. We're doing the monorail pub crawl. We want you guys to join us on Sunday, November 10th at 5 p.m. We are starting at the Grand Floridian. At we, the Enchanted Rose. Yes, which we're excited about because we've not, obviously, we've not seen it. Mm-hmm. We used to hang out there when it was Meisner's Lounge. I loved Meisner's Lounge. Same. But I hear that this is pretty amazing. As long as they still have the musicians and you can hear the music from the bar, I will be fine with that. Well, we're going to find out soon enough. But we are going to start there before moving over to the Contemporary and then concluding at the Polynesian. So we have a Facebook event right now. Feel free, invite your friends, RSVP. Let's get a little head count going. We'd love to know if you guys are going to join us and how many of you there are going to be because then we can also kind of pace it because I don't want to leave anybody behind like E.T. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an open event, so invite whoever you like. And if you can't make the whole thing starting at 5 o'clock, just keep an eye on the social media because we're going to be posting where we're at so you can jump in. That's the beauty of being on the monorail. You can just hop on and off whenever you want. That's right. And... We have a shirt that we are giving away to one lucky prize winner who joins us on the pub crawl. The picture of the shirt is in the event page. I'm sure we'll post it on our social media as well. But if you want to win the shirt, you got to be in it to win it. Make sure that you guys join us. We mentioned it before. We'll mention it again as we do in every episode. If you guys are looking for that last minute trip to Disney to go check out Galaxy's Edge, go see Mickey's Very Merry or maybe join us on the monorail pub crawl. Jackie can help get you there. Yes, you can reach out directly through our social media. Just shoot us a DM or you can email me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. We're going to go on Carousel of Progress. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.